0: Please have a seat. Good morning. Awesome music this morning. Uh, our family here at Grace uh, was able to experience uh, two great funerals in this fall. Two ladies that made major influences uh, on this church and in the lives of people around them because of their walk with God. Uh, one is Marion Sear. She used to sit right over there, and she touched a lot of people around her because she would dance to all the worship, but she touched people in different ways as well because of her love for the Lord and uh, her commitment to prayer. Uh, Lisa Jones used to sit right over there. She was a lot like Marion in that she believed in prayer and the power of prayer. And she had found that balance of being able to tell people the truth in love. And because of that, a lot of lives were changed. Both these ladies loved God and they loved other people. And both funerals were wonderful celebrations because they were lives that were lived fully and they were lives lived, given over to the Lord. And people would say, wow, that was just a great funeral. And I would say, think about it you live a great life, you get a great funeral. (laughs) You live a great life, you get a great funeral. Well, we're going to finish our uh, series on the United Kingdom period today, and we're going to look at the funeral of King David. He lived a great life. He has a great funeral. David's writing in the section we're going to look at today, we're going to look at David's obituary that he writes himself, but It's inspired by God. He's having to write it because God is telling him what to write down on this. And you live a great life, you get a great obituary. These are the last words of David. And when David inherited the kingdom, it was a kingdom built on sand, and the one he turns over is marble. He lived a great life. He had a great funeral. And we're going to see this in 2 Samuel chapter 22 and chapter 23, And uh, we'll see that the writer of Samuel, uh, appropriately, uh, lets the story kind of… lets David tell the end of his story by writing a couple of psalms, a a psalm and a poem. Because David, while he was a great warrior and an amazing strategist and a good politician, he was a songwriter. He loved the Lord, and he loved to write songs about the Lord. And so we'll begin our part in chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. These are David's last words. It says in verse 1, these are the last words of David. This is his obituary. This is, right, his eulogy. And, he, and what I want you to see in this is I want you to watch a noticeable progress in the first few verses. I want you to see a noticeable progress where David sees himself starting off as the humble son of a simple you know, person in, in Bethlehem. And then God is going to pluck him out of that, and he's going to choose him and anoint him, and he will be a hero. He will be uh, used by God, by, by God speaking to him and God speaking through him. Look at the first two sentences here. The inspired utterances of David, the son of Jesse, the utterance of, a, of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by God. I've capitalized that. We're going to see anointed again, and I want you to see that this is what the reference will be. And the man anointed by the God of Jacob and the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of Jehovah spoke through me. His words were on my tongue. Next two verses, he's going to explain the qualities of the ideal king. He's going to be used God by God, and he'll do that. He'll be used by God because he fears the Lord, it says. But he uses careful language here in verse 3. It says, the God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over the people, literally it says, as the righteous one, when he rules in the fear of the Lord. As the righteous one, not in righteousness, but as the righteous one, this is a link to the, the, the promise of the Messiah. The students in our youth group will tell you what that word is in Hebrew the righteous one that's sadiq and david sees himself as a type of that promised to messiah one and when you rule like the righteous one and you fear the lord here's what in verse 4 it looks what happens and he is like the light of the morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning and like the brightness after a rain that brings grass from the earth when the king rules like the righteous one when he fears the lord the whole country flourishes it's prosperous and they're protected everyone's healthy and now and now David says in his eulogy this last words of David this is his pride of life verse 5 if my house if my house were not right with god surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part surely he would not have uh, he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. That's what David's proud about. If, if things were not right in my house, in my house, there it is again. It's a reference to this covenant with David. It's called the Davidic covenant. And he realizes that he has been chosen by God and blessed by God, that he is receiving this promise that for his everlasting well-being that David is part of the great plan that God has for all of mankind, that, that David is being enveloped into the Abrahamic promise, the promises made to Abraham long years ago, and those are safe, and, or they are arranged and secure, the promise to his house. And then second, in the second part of that sentence, it says of his, his salvation is secure as well. His salvation is secure and that all his needs are being answered. So the the point is that David has lived a great life, and he's getting a great eulogy, a great funeral here. It says so right here. That's what it says in the Bible. This is God's view of David. We say around here, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Second, what you think God thinks about you what you think God thinks about you. This is what God thinks about David. Most people, when we, you bring up the name David, we, we go to him killing the giant, right? He killed Goliath, trash talker, mocks the name of God, and David takes his head. Then, as though nothing happened, there's nothing else to his life, uh, the next thing you know, he's, he takes Bathsheba. And to cover up that adultery, he has Bathsheba's husband murdered. And these are not merely sins against God. These are crimes. These are capital offenses. And even in our study, we're only studying these two books for 13 weeks. We spend two weeks on the sin and his forgiveness. And so when when you think about David, you think that David is damaged goods. He's, he's not what he should be. You, he's, he's the scratch and dent section of the appliances where you can get a discount on those, or the, the furniture with the three legs out of four. That's where David is. Or, or let me put it another way. If you went to the funeral of David and there was no mention of Bathsheba, there, there was no mention of Uriah, you, would the pastor be cowardly? Was it, would it just be, you know, just uncomfortable? That's not God's view. God's view of David is what we see here. This is God's view. This is all that matters. Verse 5, let's look at it again. If my house were not right with God, he's right with God. Because if it were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me the everlasting covenant arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not have bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. (laughs) Is this really the way God thinks of David? It is. And if you think any other way, you're wrong. You can, you can go to Bible programs, or you can probably even do it online, and you can look up the name, the word David, in the Bible from this section of Scripture forward, and you're going to see that every time it's mentioned, the, the name David is mentioned, it's in a positive context in a summary statement of this obituary, of this eulogy. In the, in the kingdom period, it's, it's First and Second Kings, it's called in the Bible. It comes after the Samuels, and for 17 times… God says to the kings, walk in my ways, keep my statutes and commandments like my son David. You live a great life, you get a great funeral, you'll be a great king. That's what God says. There's 40 kings, and all of them are supposed to be living up to the standard of David. That's the way God sees them. I mean, David, listen, David lives with the consequences of his choices, but but the sin and the, dis- and the consequences are not affecting the way God views David. In Nehemiah, one of the last Old Testament narrative books, story books, two times it's God, it calls David a man of God. In the prophecy section, eight times David is called David my servant. In the New Testament book of Acts, God says this, I found David, my son, a man after my own heart. This is God's view of David. This is God's perspective. This is what God thinks about his covenant with David. This is what God thinks about David's salvation. Do you believe that? you believe that about David? Is that your view of David? If you think any other way of David, you're wrong. Now, even if you get that part right, what do you think about you? Well, actually, who cares? What do you think God's view of you is? The most important thing of your life is what you think about God. Second is what you think God thinks about you. What do you think God thinks about your covenant of salvation? What do you think God thinks about your soul? Because if you think anything different than what God thinks, you're wrong. And when God looks at you, he says, this isn't like a hopeful preacher, Matt, talking to you. These are promises from God saying, I see the righteousness of my son. I am blinded by his perfect blood that covers you and disguises you to look like him. What could he do that he hasn't already done to make you perfect in his sight? What God thinks about you. Now, are you having problems understanding how a person could come to this conclusion? Do you wonder how or why David might think that he, (laughs) is there anything wrong in my house? Yeah, David, there is some stuff wrong difficulty trusting what is true, how could David come to these conclusions with so much confidence, in other words? How could he write this obituary with such clarity and certainty that all things are good between he and, and, and God? How could he do that? Here's what it is. It's what David thinks about God. Let's review. The second most important thing in your life is what you think God thinks about you. The first most important thing in your life is what you think about God. And what David thinks about God is the reason he is able to write this eulogy. It's the attribute of God that gives David this perspective in life. That's found in the previous chapter, chapter 22. Chapter 22 is such a beautiful psalm of scope and depth that is actually in the Bible two times. It's called the Song of David. And so all of chapter 22, it's 51 verses, and it's cut and pasted and put into Psalm 18. It's an amazing psalm that starts off the, with Jehovah and ends with forever. And the theme of the psalm is David's, it's, it's a summary of his life, it's his biography, and it's how God used a simple boy like me. That's the, that's the point of the psalm. But we, we don't have time to study it except for the last paragraph, 47 through 51. And I'm going, I want you to, I'm going to try to show you, but I want you to be looking for, excuse me, how David thinks about God. What David thinks about God. That's the key. So in verse 47 of the previous chapter, 22, Jehovah lives. Praise be to the rock. Exalt be my God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who put the nations under me, who set me free from my enemies, who exalted me above my foes. From that violent man, Saul, you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Jehovah, among the nations, and I will sing the praises of your name. Here it goes. This is it. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. We're going to need to look at 51 for quite some… Look at, everything's capitalized. (laughs) His unfailing kindness to his anointed to David and his descendants forever. Let's start with David and his descendants. He's referring back to this Davidic covenant, this promise to David that brought him into the promise to Abraham, the plan that God has for all of mankind that he would someday rule in righteousness and that justice would prevail. And in in that promise to David, it says, you will be the father of many kings and then there will be this one king and he will reign forever, and that's why he says to my descendants forever. Another key to this sentence here is the word anointed, and it's, it, it's strategic for three reasons. The first reason is that anointed is, is a word where David knows he's, he is showing himself in history, like he knows his place in history where he is the anointed, and anointed is the same for p- the promised and also Messiah. Now, the second reason it's important is because it's uh, grammatically it's called the poetic core. It's the center of the poetic core of this whole section. In other words, this word anointed is tying into the obituary that I mentioned before, and it's the focal point of this entire discussion that we're having today, that David sees himself as 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 the first and the first, this is the third reason anointed is really great. Is because anointed goes back to the beginning of the story, where the whole the whole story of First and Second Samuel is really one book. It is a book that has a mirror. It is it, it is complementing. The end is complementing the beginning. And at the beginning, you remember there was this older woman who was barren, and she couldn't have a child, and she had a miraculous conception. birth, and she named him Samuel, and she praised God for Samuel, for answering her prayer, because Samuel's name means God answers prayer. And she brought to our vocabulary for the first time this word anointed. And so David is signaling that he sees himself as the first answer to Hannah's prayer several years before. The anointed. David sees himself that way, and so why? Why does David see himself confident within the prom within the Davidic covenant? Why does he think that the promises of God that were made to him are still secure? Why does he think this is still intact? Going back to this eulogy, if my house were not right with God, why? Why does he believe that? So certainly, the last section of chapter fifty-one or verse fifty-one. He gives his king great victories, and he shows his unfailing kindness to his anointed and David, his descendants, the unfailing kindness. That's what David believes about God. That's what we need to learn about what what David believes that we should believe. The most important thing in your life is what you believe about God. David believes in this unfailing kindness, it is chesed, is the Hebrew word, hesed. It is, It can be translated kindness, sometimes it's translated love. Loving kindness is a bit crude, and so sometimes you'll see covenant love there. And the reason covenant love adds more depth to the word is because it is a love that is not sentimental or emotional, even in the least bit. It is volitional, it is character-driven love. So, you'll see loyal love. You'll see steadfast love. So, it would read, God shows his loyal love to his anointed. What's putting any of this in jeopardy? The story of David and Bathsheba. So, we have the story of David and Bathsheba. He takes her. He impregnates her. He covers it up by having the husband murdered. And then Nathan knocks on his door and says, you are that man. Now, in the context of his whole life, the bottom falling out of it, the first thing he puts a pen to, it, the, thing, the, the attribute of God he runs to has already been recorded for us. It's in Psalm 51. It's the very first sentence. This is what David does when he when he this is the attribute David runs to when he is in need Psalm 51:1 have mercy on me o god according to your unfailing love according to your hesed, according to your loyal love according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions David David <laughs> what does he know about god he knows he knows god is hesed he's a loyal lover why does david go here Why does God, why should God forgive him? Because God is loyal to his grace, to his grace. God is loyal to his own mercy. God is committed to his own compassion and his love. Hesed is not, it is covenant love. It's it's an obligation. It's a, a sacrifice because of the will and this is what david believes about god this is what you and i are supposed to believe about god that god is hesed loyal love covenant love he is he is loyal to his own nature he is loyal god is loyal to his own nature And this quality of steadfast love, of covenant love, of loyal love, it's always used in reference to God and his love for us. There's nothing emotional or sentimental or volatile about the love of God. It is his character. And so you'll see when it's it's talked about that it, it doesn't cease. It's not whimsical. It never leaves. It never betrays. If you look at the actions of Jesus Christ, they are driven by Hesed, loyal covenant love. And so it is Jesus's Hesed towards the Father that has him play the role of the Savior. Yes, I will leave everything in heaven, Hesed, because of my covenant love to my nature to serve the Father. It is the Hesed of Jesus that he gives himself the just for the unjust. Every action of Jesus as a priest is obliged by his nature. And so he takes our prayers and our offerings and he sanitizes them and sanctifies them, as it says, and he brings those things to the Father. And why would he do that? To be faithful to his own nature. He can't do anything else. That's what hesed means. And so you'll see in Hebrews chapter 13, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you because he can't. And we can all say with confidence, it says, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can any man do to me? What could anyone do to me? Because God has obliged himself by the nature of his character to never forsake me. So, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And this is what you're supposed to think about God. That he is by nature, has a loyal love. And he is obliged and dedicated to love his children. And David knows that. That's why he sings about it. He owes it, not to us, but he owes it to himself to fulfill the promises that he's made for us. It's his unfailing love. It's his covenant love. It's his loyal love. That's what drives everything. So, just as before, do you believe what God thinks about you? This time, it's now, do you believe this about God? And particularly, when David brings this up, it's about salvation. Salvation is a covenant that we have with God. Do you understand this part of it? That, that the nature of salvation covenant is obliging God, not you so much. It, <laughs> it's, your faith, it's not, a, you know, it's so funny. Even our, our, our narcissism gets in the way of the things that we need the most and the, even the way we perceive God. It's not even, salvation is not even about us. It was never about us. Salvation. our faith is in the nature of God, not in our probability to continue to sin until we have finally been put into the ground. It, our faith is in the hesed of God, that he is obliged to fulfill the promises that he's made to us because of who he is, because, because, because he said so. So, What difference does this make? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. Fundamentally, it comes down to this. What voices do you listen to? Why why could any believer be insecure about anything? He says, and he can do no other once he's promised it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me read it again. I will, therefore, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Who, what can man do to me? You know why we're insecure? In any context or afraid is because of what we listen to. What are you listening to? Is it true? Is it from the Lord? Is it about him being loyal, love, covenant, covenant? Love. Obligated to fulfill his promises? If that's the bedrock of what you believe, then fear and insecurity, there's no place for that. <laughs> where, 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 where could it possibly come up? Uh, it said that um, what a man, what a, man um, a man becomes the God that he worships. A man becomes the God that he worships. Of course. He has to. And we invent gods that are independent of the Bible, and then we have to live with the consequences. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And second is what you believe God thinks about you. And if we worshiped this God that David worshiped, and we ran to the attribute of God that he is loyal in his love, covenant and promise-driven love, then we would have great confidence. And here's what happens with that. It transforms us from the inside out. And the reason we can have more powerful relationships and more loving marriages and more giving towards other people is because we have this bedrock confidence in what is true about the nature of God and what is true about how God thinks of us. And we just we walk around with armor that has pores that only spills going out. The love, the hesed of God. If you become like the God you worship and you worship hesed, you will be that type of lover. Not emotion driven, not swept by winds and circumstances, but one that's driven by the will And by nature, that's what David had. That's what made him so different than any other king and few other men. That's the attribute that he lived his life around. That's what makes a good funeral. Live a good life, you get a good funeral. That kind of sums up our study in the United Kingdom period, which is, you know, for the most part, the study of the United Kingdom period is the study of David, but the true study of the United Kingdom period is the study of God, the nature of God, what we believe about God. And David was to serve for us, for the saints of the old for sure, but for us as well, that he was a type of one to come. Anointed means the promise or the Messiah. Messiah means promise, promise means anointed. So it all means this, this idea of look out, you guys, for something. And and this David would be like a king that would come in the future, and that he would save God's people, and he would restrain evil, and he would su- be surprised and unexpected. He came from where? Bethlehem. <laughs> the world would be unworthy of him, and so he would have to live in the desert and wander. He'd have to take responsibility for the wrongs of other people. He would be betrayed by the people he blessed. He wouldn't defend himself, but trust God for his only judge. And then the king, the anointed, would do what David could never do. He disqualified himself, and no man could do this. It would have to be a different kind of man, like a second Adam, that he could crush the head of the serpent, that he could kill death, that he could take away the sting. And that's what Jesus did. And so the clues were left for everyone to be looking for. And the years passed, and then the decades, and then the centuries, and then a millennia. But time has no diluting effect on the Hesed of God. Because then, as you remember, the story began with an older woman who could not conceive. And she had a miraculous conception and a miraculous birth and a miraculous child. And she named him Samuel, God's promise. And she made him a Nazarite, set apart for a purpose. And after a thousand years, there was this other old woman who couldn't conceive. And she had a miraculous conception and miraculous birth and a miraculous child. And she named him John. And he was a Nazarite, set apart for a purpose. And then, and then, and then, another miraculous conception, a miraculous birth, a miraculous child, and they named him Emmanuel, because now God was with us, Jesus. That's what Christmas is about. And when Mary said her prayer, her prayer was an echo of Hannah's prayer. And she said to Hannah, a thousand years later, he's here, he's here. Capital H, the anointed, the Messiah, the promise. Another king born in Bethlehem, that would live in caves and roam Palestine and die in Jerusalem. But this king, he changed everything. And all the promises that were made to David that took a thousand years to culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ are made to us as well because Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm coming back and we're going to make this right And he won't be in a crib this time. And so you and I, we live by faith in the Hesed, loyal, covenantal promise that Jesus made that we're his and he'll be calling us. We should be looking, living expectantly, longing for the day, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. God, I'd ask that you would help us keep believing things that are true. You are a promise maker and you are a promise keeper. Time has no bearing on your loving kindness, your loyal love, your covenant commitment to the promises you make based on your character and nature. Lord, I'd ask that you would help us Identify the lies that we believe, the tapes that we keep playing, the things that keep causing us to be takers instead of givers, insecure instead of confident, afraid instead of courageous. Lord, I'd ask that we would know you for who you truly are. Hesed, the great lover, that we would, we are made in your image, that we would act in that image.